going on, kids? Welcome to another episode of the Everyday Missionary Podcast. My name is Matt Boswell. I'm the host of this podcast, and this is episode 195. Man, 195. Those are some big numbers. Like, I was thinking about it today that, you know, I, I do this podcast every single week. I think since I started this podcast, I've only missed like three weeks in that whole span of time. So that's like years in the making. This is really crazy. So we're pressing up to that 200 number. Blows my mind that we're finally getting there. Um, and I'm sure there'll be many other episodes to go beyond that, right? But I'm just kind of excited that, hey, we're going to hit 200. That feels like some kind of strange milestone. So kind of cool stuff. But we got plenty to do even for today. Now, before I get underway with the topic of today, which is going to be one that's very dear to my heart, really important to me, kind of spurred on by an article I came across this last week. Um, before I get to that, two things. First of all, for those watching, I know most of you that are part of this podcast, you are listeners, you're not watchers. There's some of you that are watchers. And with that, if you're watching, you're going to be like, Matt's world is very blue. It is like, it's like a palette of blues and a floating head in the midst of that, right? Because I, I didn't even think about it. Like I was just, you know, getting ready to go to the gym and everything else. And I throw on a blue shirt against a blue backdrop with a blue flag. And I'm just like, wow, it's, it's like, I just have a floating head in a blue palette. It's like an indigo world. So anyway, just, I thought I better acknowledge that. Cause anybody that is kind of checking this out right now from a visual perspective is going to be like, that's just, yeah, that's a lot of one color in that place. So anyway, I want to acknowledge that. The other thing, just a quick story I want to tell you, but it's a story with a moral to the story at the end, believe it or not. Um, but it's interesting, uh, as many of you know, uh, I am one of those fanatical gym rats. So uh, right around the same time as I started this podcast, I started going to the gym. Uh, that was born out of the fact that I had gone to my doctor. I was having some health problems. Uh, my doctor says, well, you know, you have an autoimmune disease. And when you have stress, it exacerbates the symptoms of your autoimmune disease. And with that, if you want to mitigate some of those negative physical feelings, you have to deal with your emotional balance baggage, which means you got to figure out how to address the stresses in your life. And so with that, I thought, man, one of the great ways that I can actually deal with stress is to go throw a bunch of heavy weight around at the gym for about 45 minutes a day. And that seems to get rid of the stress or at least helps to bring it down to some degree. So that's kind of what I've been doing. Uh, and I've done that faithfully seven days a week ever since I started, except for the COVID stuff. That was the only times where I've ever been forced to take a break uh, and everything else. And the stress came right back up during that time. It was a drag, but you know what? God uses all things to teach us everything teaches in life, especially things that disappoint you. So all the more, it's just like, okay, I had plenty to learn. Anyway, sorry, a little bit of a sidetrack there for a second. Um, so I've been going to the gym faithfully. And here's the thing, like once you start going, uh, if you put in enough time, six months or a year, whatever else, at that point, you're chained to the system, right? Because now you've made enough investment that to not continue with that investment just feels like neglectful. Like, man, I suffered all of this pain and agony to get to this certain place. You want to keep maintaining what you've accomplished at that point. So then you just, you're, you're in it. You're going to keep going all the time. That's what's going to happen, right? So that's what's happened for me until this last week, something happened that was just sort of a drag, which was my local gym here in town closed, right? And there's no other real option for the kind of uh, gym routine that I do. There is a CrossFit uh, kind of out outcropping here in town. There's a CrossFit gym. Uh, for those of you who are CrossFitters, 
God bless you. I think it's awesome. I think you guys are incredible athletes. CrossFit's not my thing, mainly because CrossFit requires you to do a lot of cardio work and a lot of running and all this stuff, and I only run when chased, so I'm not a CrossFitter, right? I'm just a guy that wants to throw a bunch of weight around at the gym, so that's what I do. Therefore, when my gym closed, I didn't have a lot of options here in town, so I needed to go north to Monroe and sign up for a gym that was up there. So, went up there last week, signed up for it, and and here's the thing, like, when you have a gym that you've been a part of for a long time, you know the rhythms of that place, you see the regulars, you know the staff, you know, all those kinds of things. And it kind of feels like a second home in some ways. When you go to a new gym though, oh my goodness, man. Like that first day I went in and I look like one of those kind of shell-shocked soldiers on Omaha Beach and Saving Private Ryan where they're just kind of bewildered and kind of staring off in the distance and are like, what's my name and where am I at and who am I fighting for and is this a war or am I just here to sunbathe and, you know, like just just so much bewilderment and that's why I felt going to the gym. I like walked in and I'm like, I don't know these people. I don't know the space. It's much bigger. That piece of equipment over there looks like a torture device. That one over there looks like a car hoist. I don't know what's doing in the gym, you know, and so you just can't find your bearings. Everything's confusing. It's all a bit intimidating. Um, it's the gym that I've been a part of, it was mostly like 30, 40, 50 somethings. Now I'm at this gym where it's mostly seemingly 20 somethings that are way more ripped, way more strong, way more fast, way more spry than I am. So all the more I'm like, I'm just the old guy that feels out of place. And that was that moment where I went, oh yeah, that's kind of like what it's like when you join a church or start going to church or you become a Christian. Everything is intimidating. Everything is new. You don't know what these things do, what it's all about. Why do they stand and why do they sit and why are they singing out loud? And what's with the snack at the end of the service once a month? And couldn't they splurge on something better than a little cracker and some juice? Like, come on, is that the best snack in the world? Like, there's all these things. And the pastor said this word and that word. And I don't even know what sanctification means. And why is he talking about things that I don't understand? And a high priest, isn't that from like... I don't know, Indiana Jones 2, there's a high priest there. He was tearing people's hearts out. Why is there a high priest in the Bible? And what's that about? Like all that kind of stuff just freaks people out. The Christianese, the um, lack of understanding, the, the again, the, the flow and the symbols and, you know, which way do I go when I walk through the front door and all of that. And so it was just a reminder to me that as Christians, we always want to be sensitive to the new people that are coming in, whether new to our church or new to our faith. There's just so many unknowns and it can be incredibly intimidating. Like what I experienced that first day at the gym. Now, since then, I've probably been another six or seven times. And so it's starting to feel a bit more normal. I kind of understand where things are at. I understand some equipment I've never used before, how to use it now. And like you grow into it, but at first it's really kind of weird. And so all the more we want to be awesome, especially as a church, as we're thinking about um, the fact that we're opening here in June to go live again together on our lot. And then hopefully in the fall, we'll be back at the high school. But it just reminds me, we want to come alongside other people and help them to feel welcomed, valued, coached, so they can ultimately be unleashed, right? Those are the four values we have as a church. And, and we want to all be doing that, whether you're a part of Redemption Church or not. We just want to think in terms of, we want to come alongside and serve people as they are integrating into this awkward thing called Christianity. Because Christianity is awkward. And, and, and maybe that's going to kind of take us into the topic of today. I, I want to say that Christianity is awkward because when you read the Gospels and you look at the kingdom and you see what it is that Jesus is setting up and establishing, it is so different than our world 
it's awkward, right? Every part of it is upside down and backwards from the normal rhythms of life. And so with that, it takes some time to kind of grow, adapt, learn, cultivate the the kind of the culture of Christianity into your own life. And, and so, you know, there's, there's just this whole awkward season that we go through. And to be faithful in Christianity requires we continue to kind of always be in this awkward space and we live awkward lives because they are different than the world around us. And so this is going to be then kind of bridging into the topic that I want to talk about today. It's one that is very much on my heart, has been for a long time. I've been thinking about this for a while. And then this last week, I was listening to the Holy Post podcast. They referred to an article in Christianity Today. Uh, and so I went ahead and read the article and I'm like, this is this is so spot on. And so I, I want to talk not so much about the article. I'll quote it a little bit, but but I want to kind of pull a lot of stuff together, and it has everything to do with being effective as Christians in our culture and realizing that effectiveness to a large extent is predicated on unity, and unity to a large extent is a manifestation of the presence of the kingdom in the world. So again, all of that, I'm going to see if I can kind of untangle it, string it back together in a way that will make a little bit more sense for the podcast, and then we can march on from there. Now, let me give you, first of all, the title of the article at ChristianityToday.com is The Splintering of the Evangelical Soul, Why We're Coming Apart and How We Might Come Together Again. Um, so, like I said, I'm not going to really read through much of this article, but you might want to go and read it because I think there's a lot of really good information in there. But I'm going to kind of bridge out of it a little bit, and I want to talk again about how the kingdom is displayed in the unity of God's people. And if we're not unified as God's people, then the kingdom is not displayed, and therefore the gospel is thwarted in the process. And if there's anything I think is critical here, it's realizing that when we lose this we lose it all, right? Like legitimately, we lose it all. We lose what makes us light and salt in the world. So here's where I want to start. I want to just remind us of what the kingdom is really all about, right? And at the core of the kingdom, it's Jesus, right? Jesus is the kingdom. The kingdom is Jesus. They're kind of one and the same. They're tethered together. So you never want to lose that. But when Jesus came into the world, he inaugurated the kingdom. And the kingdom was this inbreaking of heaven into the earth, right? It's a recapturing and it's a, a reclaiming of the earth. And, and so in that, part of the essence and the idea of the kingdom is taking all the diversity of what's in the world and then hubbing it together in unity, not getting rid of the diversity, but realizing that unity is so precious in the spirit of the kingdom that the diversity is kind of celebrated in a sense of unity. So let me take you all the way back to the very first page of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we see this series of iterations where God is uh, establishing creation. And in that, there's a series of divisions, right? So he divides day from night. He divides land from sea. He divides air above from the waters below. There's all this division that takes place. But the division all then comes together in this harmonious unity, this ecosystem of the planet where divide, divide, divide creates a cohesive whole. So you have both division, but division that celebrates unity. Then you get to chapter two and he makes the man and the woman. And again, there is diversity and division. She's she, he's he, but they come together as one flesh. Diversity in unity, right? So all of that comes together in Genesis chapter two. 
course, in Genesis chapter 3, everything falls apart, uh, just goes to hell in a handbasket. Why handbaskets? Hell, I don't know, but that's where it goes. And so it's broken at that point. And then we fast forward to Genesis chapter 12 when God says, okay, now Abraham, I'm going to use you to reestablish this unity in the context of diversity. And by that, I'm setting you up as a nation to bless the nations, to reach the nations. And so the nations are the diversity, but they will be rallied in unity under the blessing of God. And so God then sets up Israel to do that. And Israel represents unity and diversity. There are 12 nations or 12 tribes rather in this one nation. And those tribes have different people with different kind of you know, dispositions and abilities and skills and sets and all that stuff, but they are still unified. And their unified goal in their diversity is to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, right? So that is what they are called to do. They are called to, in essence, be a, a declaration of God's heart for the world. And the goal of Israel was not to convert everybody to Yahwehism. Rather, the goal of Israel was to live as a unique and distinct entity in the world, making much of God, showing a world world that is very different than the world that everybody else knew, a world under God where there was love and peace and true holiness, which again, holiness is that display of love and mercy and justness. That's functional holiness. That's how they were to be uncommon or set apart. They were to be displaying love and mercy and justness. And that would be then a light to the nations, but they blow it. They fail. They reject their Messiah. They reject their calling. And so then the kingdom responsibility falls to the church. And the church is not the same as the kingdom. The church is a, an ambassador of the kingdom. The church is showing the presence of the kingdom in the world and chiefly by being kingdom citizens. And by being kingdom citizens, what that means is that Christians live out the stuff like being having a spirit mindedness versus a fleshly mindedness, like in Romans eight, or the church lives out the kingdom values of Jesus, which is the first is the last, the greatest is the least, uh, that we're looking to not be served, but to be servants. It's not about my will, but it's about the needs of others. It's me using the privilege that I have in Christ, grace, gospel, empowerment, so that I can then care and serve and give to others around me. It's not looking out for my own interests, but rather it's looking up for the interests of others, Philippians chapter two, right? And the list goes on and on and on. So it's living out the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain and the Fruit of the Spirit, all the things I'd love to make a big deal about in this podcast, right? So that is the kingdom stuff that we're meant to be. And so it's our unity in our diversity under the banner of Christ, living out the kingdom, filled with the spirit in such a way that we are a very different people and the world around us can then see our light on a hill representing God and they can see our good works and they glorify our father in heaven, Matthew chapter five, right? So that's the big picture. And you can tell in my voice, I get kind of excited about this stuff, right? So that's what it is. And part of what's so beautiful about the display of the kingdom in the context of the church and how we're light is that we model how to love one another even in our differences, how to be unified even in our diversity, now, some of that diversity is, you know, going to be as simple as background, uh, upbringing, color, you name it, right? But other parts of that diversity are going to be the fact that there are gray areas in the Christian life. There are things like in Romans chapter 14, where for some people, something is a sin, where for other people, it's totally okay to do, right? That's a gray area. And even in that, we're supposed to kind of make allowances for one another. We're not to judge one another over the gray areas. So in other words, we say we value unity in the context of diversity. And while we're different and we sometimes disagree, we don't let those disagreements kind of overshadow the unity that we're to have. 
And so the unity we're to have is critical for two reasons. One is because, again, it's just we're called to be peacemakers. So in having unity, you're modeling peacemaking. I think more importantly, though, the reason that we want unity is because Jesus says that is the way the world knows I'm real. That is the way the world knows I bring transformation to people's lives. That is the way the world will know that my spirit is so empowering. You all can get past your biases. You can get past your judgments. You can get past your differences in your diversity. And you can prove that there is Christian unity in the spirit of love because the world knows your mind when you love one another. He says that in the gospel of John. It's probably even why then John's letter, 1 John, which is five chapters long, makes a big deal about, hey, listen, if you say you've been touched by the love of God, and if you say you love God, you're going to love one another. And if you don't love one another, then you really don't love God and you've not been touched by the love of God. So the very essence of the gospel's transformation is that it builds and breeds into us a type of love. And that love is so potent and so true and so legitimate, it, it kind of finds itself and we itself into the difference and differences and diversity that we have as Christians. And, and from that, we learn to live with one another in harmony, even in the differences, right? All of this stuff is representing the kingdom. And those differences, that diversity, sometimes even the disagreements that we may have among ourselves as Christians in gray areas or other things, even that becomes an opportunity to display the heart of the kingdom, in fact, I want to read to you Philippians or Colossians rather chapter three, because this is a little passage where I go, uh, it's like when, when we don't all agree, when we don't all see the world the same way, but we fight still for unity, it's an opportunity to be like Jesus and to show just how incredibly different the kingdom is than the ways of the world. So Paul's writing to this church in Colossae and they're very different people from all different backgrounds and biases and everything else. He says, but in verse 12 of chapter three, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must, most, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others above all. Clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Right? So what that tells me right there is that when we have differences in life, when we see the world from different points of view, but as followers of Christ, this passage then says, those things are an opportunity for us to practice these things. And if we practice these things, when we have this diversity or these differences or these disagreements, if we're willing to kind of uh, make allowance for each other's faults or to forgive because the Lord forgave us and that we fight for peace to be one body, when we do that, man, that's when we really shine. If we're a light to the world, if we're sitting on a hill, we shine when we do this. But if we fail to do this, and instead, we start to kind of break off into these little micro fractions, and we start to have this splintering diversity within the evangelical spectrum. And from that, we're all looking at the different little micro parts inside evangelicalism where the divisions lie, and we're kind of spurning one another and, 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 and kind of shaming one another, and we're looking down on one another, and we're judging one another. Uh, not only does that, again, create all kinds of mess relationally, 
but it literally destroys the authenticity and proof of the gospel. It will literally bring evangelism to a grinding halt and it will create an anti-evangelism. Like when we're not unified, when we're just kind of diversified with negativity and we're splintering in all these directions, it's literally like an anti-gospel. It's Satan's favorite day. Like he's like, man, this is so good. I couldn't have engineered this on my own, right? Like when the church blows apart in a, in a social context and isn't doing Colossians 3 and isn't showing the kingdom and isn't being a positive light, but a negative light, man, it's like, it's like publicity for the enemy, right? It's proving, see, religion doesn't work. See, the gospel isn't real. See, Christianity is a farce. See, evangelicals are destructive. Like it does all of those things. And so this is where, again, I think it's really important to understand that right now in the climate we're in, we are fracturing at an alarming rate. And we're kind of okay with the fracturing and we're looking at each other in judgment as opposed to love. And we're not trying to re-collect together as much as we're kind of just getting very used to our little micro tribes and judging all the other little micro tribes that don't see the world as we see it. So now I get finally to the article after a 20 minute podcast. All right. So the article, what it's talking about, and, and, and I think we've been seeing this for a number of years now, certainly the last five or so, but it escalated a lot more in the last maybe 12 to 18 months, is we're seeing increasing um, diversity or, 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 or division, really, uh, within evangelical Christianity. And, and I talked about this last week in the podcast about the heart of a pastor and all the things that pastors were having to deal with in this last year, right? So pastors were having to work through congregations that were divided over COVID, stay-at-home mandates, masks, um, uh, racial divides, uh, a presidency, now vaccines. I mean, you name it, like everything, there's division. And, and what's actually fueling some of the division is going to be a, a level of confirmation bias that's going on. So to go back maybe 60 years ago, uh, most of culture was able to drink from the same basic well of shared knowledge, right? So there was three networks. Walter Cronkite was the guy that was telling you the news. Uh, you know, most Americans had a very limited ability to diversify their news intake, diversify many ideas. And so everything was always kind of binary, but everybody was kind of getting the same truth, the same information, the same facts or even misinformation, but at least everybody got the same misinformation kind of generally together. But as the internet has come into play, it suddenly allowed us to curate information in very different ways. And then with the algorithms that are established with a lot of these platforms, whether it be Google or social media, it keeps wanting to channel to you a self-confirming bias, which is whatever you're most interested in, in learning, reading, or studying, it will give you more of the same. It won't necessarily give you a counter voice. It won't give you a counterfactual to what you're looking at. It will give you more of the same thing. And so it will take you further and deeper down roads that only take you in one direction. And the problem with that is that, therefore, we used to have a shared sense of truth, a shared sense of authority, uh, maybe in cultural matters, and, and that's now fragmented, and there are multiple sources of, quote, truth, I put that in air quotes, and, quote, authority, and I put that in air quotes as well, um, but to you, that's what it is. And so you curate 
things that you're interested in. It's your biases and then your biases get reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. And then pretty soon you think everybody sees the world like you do, or they just don't have the facts. They're believing lies. They're believing fake news because only your version is the real news. And what happens in that is that you're then right. They're then wrong. And then judgment comes into that as well. All of that becomes a part of the problem. And that's a lot of what this article kind of unpacks in the process. So it says, We've gone to all this diversified truth, air quotes again, uh, finding, right? And, and, and you can find a fact for anything you want to believe and it becomes a self kind of fulfilling, self generating concept. And it takes you further and farther away from a common sense of shared norms or shared ideas or shared worldview. And we get these micro worldviews everywhere. And so you then end up in one of these micro tribes, right? So perhaps your micro tribe is like, okay, you know what? All the people that are wearing masks are just cowards and they're afraid to die. And so that's their problem. That's why I don't wear a mask because I'm not a coward. I, I trust God. And so I don't do it that way. Uh, and, and, and so that becomes a little micro tribe or another little micro tribe is, uh, you know, people just don't understand systemic racism and how deeply embedded it is into the system. And we're too blind to even see it. That's how racist we really are. And so they get into that little micro tribe and they look around, they go, nobody understands it because they're not looking at the clear facts. There's clear facts. I've read many websites that show systemic racism is real and critical race theory is the most valuable tool to solving the problem, but people just don't want to accept the truth. And so they end up in that little micro tribe, get another little micro tribe over here. That's like, you know what? This vaccine is nuts. Nobody should put the needle on their arm. This is crazy. Why are they doing that? I've seen the science. Many, you know how many people have died from this vaccine? And they get down this little road about how many people have died from the vaccine. And that's another little micro tribe that goes on. And so you get all this division because people are curating the information from self-fulfilling, self-kind of promoting ideas. And we don't have a shared sense of truth. We don't have a shared sense of what's real or factual anymore. And so this is creating all sorts of dilemma. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to make some case for vaccines or for masks or for critical race theory or any of these other things. I'm, I'm highlighting the fact that what's going on is it's creating all of this division. And while that's realistic to the world and that's always going to be the, wor- the way the world deals with things, they're going to be divided for Christians, for the church, for evangelicals. When we become divided over such things, it literally is a death nail in the coffin of cultural Christianity as we know it. It will literally bring outreach, evangelism, growth, and mission to a screeching halt. Because if we fail to be unified, if we fail to love one another, if we fall victim to judging one another and kind of looking at everybody else with with our planks sticking out, then who will want our faith? Why would they want our faith? We bring nothing unique to the table. We're just no different than the world. We're just doing it in the name of Jesus, but we're nothing like Jesus when we do it that way. That's going to be the great risk and problem that we face. And so this is where, again, we have to kind of start to reassess what's most important, right? And we need to start acting as servants toward one another as opposed to judges against one another. In fact, there's a great line in this article And it's kind of toward the end of it, but he says, rather than withdrawing into communities of common loathing, the church should be offering a community of common love, a sanctuary from the fragmentation and polarization from the loneliness and isolation of the present moment. The church should model what it means to care for one another in spite of our differences on social and political matters and affirm the incomparable, deeper rootedness of our identity in Christ. That is so good, right? 
But instead, we're talking about, you know, masks, no masks, vaccines, no vaccines, uh, you know, black lives matter, blue lives matter, all this, you know, division, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, you know, we're, we're getting so sidetracked. And then we're just running around the same little groups that are just like us. Can I tell you, do yourself a favor, do yourself a huge favor. Do not fall victim to the trap of saying, you know what, I just want to run with people that sound like me, think like me, believe like like me, are motivated like me, because you know what, then it puts you in no place to actually have to practice what we learned in Colossians 3. If you just run with people that are just like you, that's easy, right? But that's not what Jesus calls you to do. He calls you to be a part of a body, right? To be a part of a body that's diverse and different and sometimes disagrees. And you still have to love and the disagreement who are sometimes difficult and you need to figure out how to not be difficult in return, but rather to be gracious in return, to err on the side of grace when you might want to err on the side of being critical. Like all of that is what we are meant to do, called to do and must be. Otherwise, again, it's adventures and missing the point. Like who would want what we have? If we can't figure that out, if we're just no different than the world in the name of Jesus, it contaminates the name of Jesus and it does nothing for the world. Nothing at all. See, this is why I'm really convinced that what makes us truly special as Christians is when it's not about my rights, my wants, my ways, but rather it's all about what my neighbor needs, what my enemy needs. How all of those things are excuses for me to lean in and love other people, even if it means I'm going to be a little uncomfortable in the process. I'm going to be a little uneasy in the process, right? Because listen, I, I've gone through it all myself this year. You know, there's certainly things I've looked at where I'm looking at other Christians. And I'm like, this seems like the lowest hanging fruit just to love your neighbor. Like, why is this so hard to just love your neighbor? Why are we fighting about that? I have personal individual rights and liberties I'm like, that's not in the Bible. Like I, I sit there and be like looking at people going, why are you, why are you fighting for not biblical stuff? Right. When, when this is just so obvious, this, this, this is the easiest kingdom values in the world. Right. And I'd be so confused and I get frustrated and I get fatigued and, and, and then I'm just like, wait, but unity is what matters most. I have to love these people that I disagree with. And if anything, as a pastor, I then need to disciple in a direction that gets us on track with that. Instead of being frustrated to those who don't see the world as I see it maybe, or don't have the same positions that I have on the topics of the day, I need to go, okay, well, first of all, I I don't want to push my issue as much as I want to push Jesus's issue. And to push Jesus's issue is hopefully then going to be to bring us all together in love, right? To get to that definition of love in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 13, you know, where love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't boast, love doesn't seek its own, right? Like having to just drive back to those principles and get all of us to rally around that, to not get fragmented by all this stuff that doesn't matter. Because I guarantee you, when we all stand before Jesus, right, what he's going to want to know in the end is, did you love well? Did you serve well? Did you sacrifice well? Did you care well? Were you kind? Were you peacemaking? Were, were you giving yourself away for the good of others and for the good of the world? Because that's the only reason we're here. We're not here to fulfill our American dream. We're not here to build up our toy reserve. We're not here for our retirement home, someplace in a tropical environment. We are here to bring servanthood to the world, to bring the gospel to the world, to bring love to the world, to bring the sense of of heaven will will touch this planet in a full forced way one day and we are to be ambassadors of that truth today and therefore we are to model what heaven looks like here on earth as Christ's church. But if we're getting all worked up and we're 
digging our heels in about every political issue, every social problem, whatever else. And we don't sound like Jesus and we don't love one another in the name of Jesus. And we don't look like a, a, a safe place in this world. If the church doesn't look like a safe place in this world, fail. Epic fail. And so this is why I say we need to start stowing some of our baggage. We need to start holding our tongues maybe a little bit more. And frankly, we need to pray and rely on the whole, the Holy Spirit a lot more. Because this stuff we're talking about here is not going to be white-knuckled by us. We're not going to be able to just bite down and do right things. It takes a spirit-mindedness. It takes a spirit-fruitedness to display these types of kingdom values, Right? And so more than ever, instead of spending all kinds of time watching MSNBC or CNN or Fox News or, you know, you pick your thing, Drudge Report or whatever thing, you know, all of the sources we go to that creates a lot of this micro division and fracturing, we do a lot better to simply read the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, Fruit of the Spirit, Definition of Love, Reminder of what the churches be about in Colossians chapter 3, uh, what the definition of true love is toward one another in 1 John 1 through 5. Like, all of it, we do far better doing that stuff and working on those things and praying those things through and asking for the Spirit to empower us to do those things than to keep getting poisoned by the stuff that keeps dividing us. Because what is true is if, if we can't get this figured out and mastered, if we can't unify under Christ, modeling the kingdom and displaying the values of the gospel, that, then you know what? Uh, it, it, it's like game over for the church in the United States. It's just like game over. And I say that from Revelation chapter two, right? So I've mentioned that recently in the podcast. It's like the church of Ephesus uh, had good doctrine. They stood against false teaching, all those kinds of things. But Jesus says, you've lost your love. And because you've lost your love, I'm going to leave. I'm literally going to split. I'm going to leave you on your own. You could still be a church. You can still function under religion, but there will be no empowerment. That's where I'm going to go. I'm going to take the lampstand. I'm going to split. That's exactly what he's talking about in Revelation chapter two. And that's always going to be my concern until we get our divisions rectified. We stop judging one another for our positions. We stop, you know, putting our positions before our gospel mandate. Like all of that is, is going to be problematic. And at some point, Jesus may just say, you know what? The church in the United States, good luck to it. You know what? It, it, it's, it's kind of damaged beyond current repair. I'll let it kind of implode on itself. And then I'll reboot another church at some point in the future. Like we don't want to be that. We want to be faithful. We want to be different. We want to be commissioned in such a way that we show, we prove, we display, we woo people by the fact that the gospel really does bring transformation, really does make it possible for me to care about another person that I differ with. Because what's more important is Jesus and Jesus in them and Jesus being communicated to those who still are yet to meet Jesus. Like all of that's got to matter more to us. It's got to matter more than our rights, than our wants, than our liberties. It's just got to matter more, right? Kingdom first and it's righteousness and everything else is added to us. That has to be the priority. And if it is, and then it's proven in love, which is then shown in unity, which is displayed by our diversity being stowed so that we show tenderheartedness, kindness, compassion. We err in love toward one another. When we do that, then we're effective light in the world. It gives the world something to want, something to long for, a place to be and belong and have new beginnings. And in that place, those beginnings become rich and deep and full because it's something unlike the world. See, it's when we're in that place with those values, that's when we will be amazing every day 
missionaries.